a young guy, he does get a lot of instruction, but there's a lot in there for us. And actually, there's nothing in there that, that isn't applicable to every single uh, Christian. So if you go back and if you were to think of them just as pastoral epistles, instructions to pastors, why study them? Why study them? Well, we're going to see that there's a lot about church administration in their church order, church uh, unity. Uh, we're going to find out the qualifications for elders and for deacons. And there's a considerable amount in there about sound doctrine, and Paul, and Paul continues to push on sound doctrine as uh, relates to salvation by grace and Christ as our meter, mediator and, and atonement. We'll find that in Timothy as well. And there's a considerable amount in there, not just, not just encouraging Timothy to live a consecrated life, but it is applicable to all of us equally, not just Timothy. So these instructions, while, they, while we may look at them as if they're instructions to just Timothy, Paul's going to um, give some instructions about these things. He's going to admonish. He's going to encourage. He's going to charge Timothy. And I think we'll find that those things uh, have a lot to do with us. So there's, there's something going on in Ephesus, right? Paul is not just writing this just to be writing a uh, how-do-you-doing how letter to Timothy. Uh, he, um, he wrote this because there's false teachers there. That was one of the things that just dogged Paul uh, just about wherever he went. There was somebody coming behind him stirring up trouble. Sometimes they didn't even wait till he left. Uh, they just got right at it uh, uh, then. The other thing is how do we live as a body? How do we relate to each other as Christians? And also, uh, by extension, how then do we relate to the world? So, if you have no unity in the church, then you're not going to have any worship. You can't worship in uh, disharmony. So Paul's got a lot to say. Now, he, he makes it clear from the beginning, there's been a few detractors that have, have uh, thought that Paul maybe didn't write this. He identifies himself. Um, they say it, it doesn't fit the linguistic and uh, style of Paul and, and some other things, but that's been uh, largely dismissed. Um, it was accepted early in the church. So it's written to Timothy, and we're going to talk in a little bit about who Timothy is. Paul starts off, he's his spiritual son. He, is, he, he loves Timothy so much. There's something really, really special about this young man that Paul sees, and he considers him his spiritual son. I did not know this until I started studying it more uh, deeply, but, but Paul mentions the name Timothy second only to who? That's it. That's how close he was to this young man. Now, he's left uh, Timothy in Ephesus as his representative. He, he's done that in other places. Um, you, you can't go to the book of Acts and exactly trace how, why Timothy in, is in Ephesus at this particular time and why Paul has left him there and moved on to uh, Macedonia. 
Um, we, well, we do know why he left him there, because false teaching has crept into the church. But we don't exactly know when this was in the missionary journeys. Acts doesn't give us a real clear record of that. But here's the, uh, here's the main issue. As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Well, there's some bad things going on there. Uh, but this is the principal reason that he's left Timothy there. Uh, we're going to find that uh, Timothy is um, apparently a fairly timid young man, so this is probably a huge challenge for him to be kind of left there on his own. It doesn't mention who else is there if he has any other support that he knows. So what do we know about uh, Timothy? Well, we know he's a, a native of um, Lystra. Some of you may pronounce it Lystra, whichever, uh, in southern Galatia. What do we know about Paul and Lystra? The first time when he, first missionary journey when he went into Galatia, one of the cities he visited, now those of you that are in my home group better get this, went, one of the first cities that he went to was Lystra, and there's a couple of things happened there. Does anybody remember? Well, you remember uh, he and Barnabas were perceived as being gods, right? And then a very short time later, here come some of these people in there, and they, they create problems. And what's the next thing that happens? They beat him and drag him out of town and leave him for dead. So one minute, he's a god. The next minute, he's beat nearly to death. So that was the first missionary journey. What we don't know is if uh, he met Timothy while he was there. It gives no indication that he did. Now, he had a Jewish mother, Eunice, and he had a, a Jewish grandmother, Lois, and they were the ones that taught him. But his father was Greek, and Paul uh, mentions that for a specific reason uh, that we'll probably mention later on. But, so in his second missionary journey, when he comes through to Lystra again, he, um, he is encouraged to meet Timothy. Timothy is a young man, but he's notable in the church. The, the, the elders of the church and the people of the church apparently have seen something special about Timothy. And so they encourage Paul to meet him. Uh, we, we get that he is uh, naturally timid. Paul talks in 2 uh, Timothy about he, that he has kind of uh, a fear. Um, he's a young guy. He's probably dealing with some elders in the church who are, all have white hair and uh, can be in, intimidating. Uh, and the people of the church may be older. Maybe uh, some of them are more knowledgeable to him, but he apparently is naturally uh, timid. And he's probably not uh, very healthy as well because Paul at one point tells him not to just drink water but to drink some wine, apparently to try to uh, ease uh, whatever stomach ailments that he um, may have. Stop, um, I know you're going to do it anyway, but if you've got a question or a comment to make, please just go ahead and, and stop me. So let's get into chapter 1. 
we get the introduction and greeting, Paul the Apostle. Now, if he's writing this letter to Timothy, why does he need to say Paul the Apostle? Why does he need to do the greeting to Timothy, his protege, and tell him that he's an apostle? That kind of led me to believe that there's one, that this is more of a, a global letter, but two, do you, do you think that maybe as, as pe other people read this, you know, if, the, if Paul the Apostle is writing these things and Timothy is going to echo them, does that not tend to give Timothy some authority as well? If the leader uh, does that, Paul used that. Uh, he got his from uh, Jesus and he's an apostle, and he used that uh, quite, quite often. Now, so what's the reason? I think it's verse, uh, yeah, verse 3 and 4. What's the reason and purpose that he's left Timothy in Ephesus? He tells him to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. So we've got some different doctrines going on there. I think we'll uh, you see as if uh, you read Timothy in detail that there's probably a Jewish influence uh, taking place there. We know from the book of Galatians, for example, all of that area, there were these false teachers that we commonly call Judaizers that were coming in after, um, after Paul, and they were creating problems because of the, the, the Jewish influence that they were trying to bring into the, to the church. And Paul was constantly having to combat that. But there's different doctrines being preached. We'll get into that a little bit. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Uh, I'm not real clear on what these myths and genealogies are. Uh, my guess is that they have a, um, a Jewish flavor to them, possibly. Because uh, he doesn't spell that out, what they are, but that would be, that would be what I would think he's talking about. Paul then expresses his gratitude for being made an apostle. You know, Paul, Paul wasn't a good guy. He, he thought he was, but he wasn't. Um, and, of course, Jesus straightened that out. And he charges Timothy in chapter 1 to wage the good warfare for which he has been called. What's the good warfare? What do you think he means by that? To wage the good warfare. Speak the truth. Yeah. There's a battle raging, right? And um, he's, he's challenging. That's, he charges him with that. That's like a command to wage the good warfare. Don't you think Timothy's probably feeling a little alone? And so this, this letter is important from an encouragement uh, standpoint. So as we move into chapter 2, he tells the readers, and Timothy particularly, to pray for all kinds of people without regard to rank or any other distinction. Well, there's a lot of that that goes on. There's a lot of that today that goes on. There's a lot of d distinction made to people by, by wealth and position, uh, the, those kind of things, and he tells them not to do this. Paul says when you do uh, pray for everyone, he said, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. 
Well, that's really the good warfare that uh, he's being charged with. That's the good warfare. And here we get into some doctrine. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. One God, one mediator, one atonement. Solid doctrine right here. And it's attitude important in prayer. You know, if we, if we go into prayer with the wrong attitude, um, that prayer is not going to be acceptable. Uh, we're, we're just wasting, wasting our time. Attitude uh, is tremendously important, how we go into prayer. And if you go back up to the very first one, pray for all kinds of people. It's not like the, um, the Jew that went into the temple and was basically, you know, I'm not a sinner like that person. Attitude is important. And then he gets into what has uh, probably been the most controversial part of all of the book of Timothy and has given people a lot of heartburn when they shouldn't be. So let's get into it. Next he gives instructions to women. And before, um, before I go on, um, just know that Peter echoed much of the very same thing that uh, Paul did as well. It wasn't Paul. So we're going to talk about modesty with self-control. Modesty and self-control. He says, women should adorn themselves in respect to apparel with modesty, modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, what is the problem with braided hair? Where, where is Paul? I mean, where is he? Where is Timothy? What do we know about Ephesus? What temple was there? Many. Yeah, many temples, but what, was, what would we think of as maybe the principal one? Artemis? Yeah, Artemis. Artemis or, or Diana. Yeah. Artemis or Diana. The, the, they're, uh, one's Greek and one's Roman. Uh, have you ever seen an image of um, Diana? Look at that sometime. Um, but, we, but it was a very wicked city. It was a, sick, uh, a pagan city that was into everything. Numerous gods, numerous temples, uh, cult, prostitution, and all the other things that go along with that. Now, we know that the dress for men and women were somewhat similar in those days. It's not varied like it is today. So if the dress is similar, what might be the issue with uh, braided hair? Because he says right after that, and gold or pearls or costly attire. Well, in those days, um, hair was one of the things that would make you stand out. It was, it was uh, how you did your hair. One commentator or historian that I read said that hair was often braided, and it was braided with uh, strings of gold, silver, pearls, shells, and a variety of other things in it that the intent was to make you stand out. 
but it would also, could also designate you as a certain kind of woman. And so that, you got to remember that Paul's reference is Ephesus and all of the other uh, pagan cities that he's, um, that he's been to. So as he continues, he talks about women and good works. The role of women in good works. We see that right here at Pine Woods. Uh, women do a tremendous amount of good works uh, right here. And, that, and Paul encourages women to do that. They are uniquely qualified for many, many of the various things that we do. And I'm sure it was being done in the church in those days. But he also says, do it in submissiveness. This is a topic that Paul gets into in uh, numerous other books of the Bible. In 1 Timothy uh, 2.10, he says, But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I looked up, I wanted to look up in the Greek, because I, I, don't, I don't know Greek, but I, wanted, I looked it up in an interlinear uh, the Greek word for quietly, to see if there was different, any differentiation between quietly and silent. And there is. There, there's different words. He used a word here that did not mean silence. It means to not be unruly, uh, particularly, but it didn't mean total uh, silence. He uses that word in another place. And then he goes on to put a limitation on the teaching and authority. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 1 Timothy 2.12. And then he gives the reason. Adam was created first. And it was the woman that was deceived. Now, Adam took the apple too. And Adam is the one God comes looking for. And Adam is the one that God holds responsible for what they did, okay? But Adam was created first, and it was the woman who was deceived by the serpent. No question, no, no comments, questions, or are you just holding, are you holding your tongue? We're being You're being submissive. What was that? <laughs> no. Say anything you wish. Okay, we'll move on then. So we get to the qualifications for overseers or elders or what the Bible sometimes, depending upon the version, calls bishops. It is quite a list of uh, things and one that... Uh, should give anybody that's an elder or aspires to be an elder, which he says it's a noble thing to aspire to be an elder. Now, sometimes we think if you aspire to, to something, that's bad. But Paul says it's a noble thing if you aspire to be an elder. So if you're, if you're feeling that you're being called, for example, then you're aspiring to that. And Paul says it's a noble thing. He gives a long, long list uh, here. Um, many of them are just pretty straightforward. You know, if you don't, if it all comes down mainly to character, right? If, if the people that the congregation nominates to be an elder, if they don't 
really see that person as having good character, then that person should never be nominated. And this character should uh, also be um, outside of the church as well because one of them says to be well thought of outside the church. In other words, you're not living a double life. You're not living a Sunday life and then a Monday life. I went to, I went to school with a, a young man one time, and I've told the home group this before. Um, so he always puzzled me. I wasn't really into the church at that time, but I knew that this couldn't be right. He would uh, go out and party like crazy on Friday and Saturday night, and then he'd go to confession on Sunday, and he'd come back in Monday and tell me everything was cool. And then Friday night and Saturday night, he would repeat the same thing. And I said, you know what? I just don't think this can be right. I don't think you can have a Sunday life and then you've got a Monday life or a Friday night life or, or, or not. But it, uh, so Paul lists, this, um, lists these qualifications as being um, the things that you've got to look for. Now, I think any, any elder, any pastor would tell you that this is a daunting list. And Paul himself said he was the chief of sinners. So there's no elder that's going to be perfect in these things. Um, and I don't think that's, I don't think Paul is saying that you've got to be perfect. Or that you will be, not that you, you should be, but that you can be. Even Paul. Let's talk about deacons for a minute. This, um, in 1 Timothy here, this is the most extensive um, list of qualifications for a deacon. Now that word, the, the Greek word that's translated deacon here shows up numerous times because it's a general word for, for, for who. I mean, who would, uh, if you think about the Greek word for deacon, we think of the diaconate, right? So what do you think that word means? Servant? It means servant. So you'll see it in other places in the Bible where it is translated servant. That's what uh, deacons are. So you have, but there's a difference. Everyone should be a servant. So it's a function that we have as Christians. But then there's an office that is, uh, that is deacon. And it's a noble office as well. But it all comes back to the same thing, character. Character, dignified, truthful, sober, not greedy, firm in the faith, proven both with elders and with deacons. You've got to be careful about not being too quick to lay on hands. If you think about all of these qualifications that were listed previously, you need to see those things. And there's a period of time that it takes for, for all of those to be obvious. So you, d you don't want to be quick to lay on hands. And that's one of the things that he shares um, with all of these different qualifications. Now, I asked a deacon about here at Pinewoods, and I said, um, I said, so do you have any other qualifications for deacons? And he said, well, they must have a strong back. He said, because most of us are worn out. And then I said, well, okay, anything else? And he said, yeah, they've got to be able to manage elder expectations. <laughs> and I said, so but what, well, so what is that kind of like? And he said, well, it's kind of like herding cats, but worse. 
I don't know. Well, Paul closes out chapter 3, giving the reason he is writing these things. So you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. How do we live together? How do we live as a body? Now, he, he, he's, he's putting this in the context. He's just given the qualifications for elders, the qualifications for deacons. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> and now he closes out the chapter you, uh, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I, I, can't, I can't answer that myself. I think the Bible's real clear on it. Other than they may consider their pastor to be the elder. And, and then they have deacons. So they, they may or may not have multiple elders. <clears throat> One elder or if they had multiple staff members, right. these guys are all the elders. And then the lay people in the church Yeah, so um, numerous places in the Bible, for example, uh, Paul, on one of his trips headed back to Jerusalem, <clears throat> he calls the elders from uh, Ephesus to come meet him, right? And you see in other places a plurality of elders. And you will also find that uh, <clears throat> he talked, and I think we'll get to it. Um, so all elders, as I read that verse, there, 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 there seem to be a separation starting taking place uh, of elders. You get ruling elders, because he talks about those that rule well, and then especially those that teach. So you see, there seem to be at this point in time starting to be a separation of the two categories of elders, if you will. Uh, why they see that differently, I, I, I can't. I, I think the my personal opinion is scripture is just pretty clear of a plurality. It's interesting to point out this, David, that the qualifications listed here in Timothy and also in Titus is, is basically the same for elders and for deacons. So one is supposedly better than the other. They're all there. They just have different functions in the church. And, and you know, unless you meet those qualifications, you should not consider to be either a deacon or an elder. Right, right. You should not, if you don't, if you don't believe that you uh, meet those qualifications, uh, hopefully you're not aspiring to be one or the other, would, would be the thing. So it, it's not only the congregation uh, taking a look at you, but you need to take a look at yourself as, um, as well. 
And then in chapter 4, he, he kind of... Get, so we, we were talking about church organization there, if you will, right? Uh, how the church operates under its leadership and what those leaders need to look like. So chapter 4, he's going to then transition a little bit away from that. And he gives them a warning about apostasy. Somebody read that for me right under there. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Yeah, so in another, uh, I think below that I put, uh, so at another time, um, he's, Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. This is when he, I mentioned he called the elders out to see him from Ephesus right down to Miletus, I believe it was. And he tells them this. He tells the elders. So I don't, I don't know if this is before or after, but I think this is probably before. Uh, but I'm not sure. Because I can't trace it exactly in Acts, I can't. Since I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Two things there. You're going to have people who come in, and we know that there were people constantly from Jerusalem coming into these churches and creating trouble. But within... The congregation itself. You got to watch for that because somebody from within, you may reject somebody that comes in and starts trying to cause trouble, but from within the congregation, you got to be really observant of that. Actually, that's one of the values of having a plurality of elders is a plurality of elders uh, should be Guarding the flock. But he told, that, he told that specifically to the elders when they came to see him. And then he gives a personal exhortations to Timothy, several of them. He says, stay out of meaningless, irreverent, irreverent arguments. And that could be, that could be anything. Ours today may be politics. Okay. Stay out of meaningless, irreverent arguments. And then he goes on to say that physical exercise is good. He's not trying to discourage that necessarily. In fact, he uses a lot of athletic terms in his, uh, in his writing. But, he said, but, that, but physical exercise is temporary. I know if I quit for two weeks, I put on weight. Um, but what's more important? Godliness training is better. Why? It's everlasting. And he's encouraging Timothy to stay the course with that. Stay the course in godliness training. So does godliness require training? I mean, how, how do we train for godliness? So read the Bible as one, yeah. Pray is another. Fellowship. Discipline. Dis discipline in what way? 
Okay. Any others? Go to church. Right thing to say. Yeah, there's a, so there's a lot of things that we could do to train ourselves. You know, um, I found over the years that if you, to that point, you stay out of church, you miss church one Sunday, two Sundays, three. Next thing you know, your habit is not to go. So it does come down to discipline and, and going to church. So, uh, <clears throat> and then he tells him to set your hope firmly on the living God. He's telling him there's no other real hope, that that is the only hope. And he continues the charge to Timothy, uh, or charge to Timothy, command and teach the truths of the gospel. That's a charge, that's a command. Same command that if I'm up here teaching and Joel's preaching and teaching, it's the same command that fits anyone because we need to be true to the gospel. We need to teach the truths of the gospel. Every single person here teaches in some way to your, your kids, your grandkids, or in Sunday school classes or, or where, home groups. So that's the command. And Timothy's apparently young, at least by the standards of Paul's age, maybe by the, by the age of the people in the church that are the leaders and so forth. Do not be intimidated because you are young. I remember when Joel first got here. He's a pretty young guy. How old were you when you got here? 35. And most of the guys in the uh, session were white, had white hair even then, right? <laughs> Was it intimidating? Yeah, it can be uh, it can be intimidating when you're around someone that's older. And we're going to talk about how you're to treat different different people in just a, in just a moment. Moment. Um, time is it? So I told him not to be intimidated, and he goes on to charge him to be a positive example. Positive example. We need positive examples. There's so many negative examples out there, but we need people who are positive examples. And he's telling Timothy to let his Christian behavior be the thing that people see. It needs to be consistent. So in his speech, his conduct, his love, his faith, and his purity. They need to see that. So these things go back to the qualifications to be an elder, or for that matter, a, a deacon. Tells him to devote himself to gospel work. So what's gospel work? Scripture. So be devoted to Scripture. Some of the things we talked about a while ago. Exhortation, to exhort people, to encourage them. And he's got to admonish ever so often. And teaching. Teach the truth of the gospel. And he tells him to practice his gifts. You, you don't, you know, if, if you're a teacher in a high school and you're coming out of college, uh, we got some teachers, ex-teachers over here. You got, still got a lot to learn, don't you? You got to practice your teaching skills. And that's, that's true with, with anything. I remember the first presentation I ever made in a corporation, I was scared to death. And probably if you've, if you've made presentations anywhere, maybe the very first one you were too. So you got to, 
you got to practice that. You got to stay with it. <clears throat> uh, Timothy had been given the requisite ability. It, it was obvious to Paul. It was obvious to the elders in the uh, church at Lystra because they laid hands on him, they commissioned him, and they sent him away with Paul. They believed and they saw in him gifts. And he was to go out and use those gifts, but he's got to exercise them. That's the encouragement that he's getting from Paul is to practice, to exercise the abilities that he's been giving. And he said, in doing so, not only will he gain confidence, but it will be noticed by others. That's all part of it. Treat others like you would, as we get in chapter 5, treat others like you would your family if correction is necessary. So he's, he's kind of giving him some uh, uh, instructions here on how you engage people uh, by sex and by age. An older man should be corrected as a father. Now, how would you correct your father? That's a little tough, but he tells him to do it with a gentle exhortation, not slamming with an admonishment, but an exhortation to encourage him. Now, young men can be treated more as you would a brother, more direct, kind of like, you knucklehead. <laughs> That's your brother. You can get away with that with a brother, maybe. Engage older women as he would his own mother. In other words, you're just flat out not going to be disrespectful to your mother is what he's, he's telling him. And with younger women, they're to be treated with respect, purity of action, and thought. He is to engage them properly, the right motives, and what he's trying to accomplish. And then we get into the issue with widows. Here at Pine Woods, as I hope with most churches, um, our, our deacons have a mercy ministry and it includes widows and they all have people that they are responsible for. But the widow has some responsibility too. She's to set her hopes on God, not be self-indulgent. In other words, she doesn't use the gifts that the church may give her frivolously. He challenges the family. It's more of a command to the family. The first line of defense for a widow is the family, particularly children. So many times today, we've got a, you got a situation so many times today where it, that didn't necessarily happen so much then where the family is dispersed and it becomes a difficult thing. But <clears throat> he challenges the, <clears throat> the family to take care of the widow's needs. Why? so they don't burden the church. You know, the churches in those days were universally poor. And they had a very limited amount of resources that they could, they could help people. So the first line of defense was, um, was the family. Now, if the family doesn't take care of the widow, worse than an unbeliever. Worse than an unbeliever. Paul had no sympathy for that. Um, these qualifications <clears throat> to be, to be a, a, what they call a, a, a widow in need, or tr uh, some versions say truly widow, truly a widow, a widow indeed, 
depending upon the version of the Bible. <clears throat> in those days, um, she was to be over 60 years of age. I don't, um, I'm not sure what the lifespan was in those days, but uh, 60 years old probably would have been considered pretty old. Um, faithfully married to one man. There's a lot of uh, discussion about what that means. And Paul doesn't give any specificity to it, but faithfully married to one man. And she's to have a reputation for good works. Uh, to have had children, be hospitable, and served the church. To get on the, what they call the, the widow's roll. And he challenges younger widows so that they would not be a burden to the church to get married again. And I think I covered this. The, 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 the reason for these instructions was to not burden the church when there were other uh, people and other resources to be had. And then how are you to treat uh, an elder? And I'm going to kind of go through this pretty quick. We talked about the separation that seemed to be taking place at that time. And it, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there seemed to be within the church some elders who didn't preach and teach, who ruled the church, that plurality, let the elders, plural, um, and then those were those who labored in preaching and uh, teaching. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence or two or three witnesses. You know, anytime that you're in a leadership position, anywhere, you're going to have people uh, challenge you in that leadership. Nothing wrong with being challenged, but sometimes it's not for honorable purposes. So he just said, two or three witnesses. Now, if you're guilty, there are some serious repercussions for that. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. An elder is to be rebuked, rebuked before the congregation. You know, it's the congregation that actually that, that elects elders, right? And commissions the elders. So it's only right that the elder would have to stand before those people that put their trust and confidence in them. Wouldn't be something I would want to have to do. And then he goes on to choose elders carefully. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. We have a requirement here that you have to be a member of the church. You have to have been here for a period of time um, before. So you need to be observed, and that's what that's about. It goes on to, on chapter 6, instructions to Christian slaves. Honor. Okay, so we lived in a society in those days where there were slaves. That was just a given. It, it, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us sometimes, but in the same church, you could have slaves and slave owners. But the first one is honor unbelieving masters. So if you are a Christian and you are a slave of an unbelieving person, you are to honor them. Should, just the same way you should honor your boss uh, at work. But if you're a slave and you also have the slave master in the church, it says respect believing masters even though they are equal. So you, work, you shouldn't, he's, he's challenging slaves, 
Don't use your equal position in the church to dishonor your master. And then, he, and then he gets back to the depraved mind of the false teacher. They're puffed up with conceit. They understand nothing. Quarrels about words, false godliness. The whole purpose is to lead people astray. That's the objective. And the product of their work, constant dissension. So remember what I said earlier? No unity, no worship. That's what can be happening. True godliness produces contentment. Uh, he talks about riches and contentment. But those who desire to be rich fail, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He gives him some final exhortations. The same ones we've talked about before. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and so forth. Fight the good fight. Now he's going to come back to the, um, the riches again under his postscript. How the rich, how the rich are to live. Essentially, they're to, they're to be, God has given them the money. They're to be, uh, do good works with it. That's the whole point. of it. Be generous. Be ready to share. Final, his final charge. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. That's the charge to Timothy as well. And he leaves him with grace. Be with you. Amen? Amen. Let me uh, close this in prayer. Father God, uh, we just so thank you for your word to Timothy and how uh, it relates to each one of us. Father, I pray that as we've uh, studied this word today, that uh, we would go forth, we would ponder it, we would so try to apply it to our lives that, like the charge to Timothy, that our desire would be to live a consecrated life. Lord, uh, as we go into the worship service, we lift up the preaching of your word and just ask that um, you would uh, make it real in our hearts. Father, that we would love you more deeply. I thank you for each person here. I lift up our pastors and elders and deacons in this church and pray that you would bless them. You would just draw us away from the things that hold us tight. Father, just thank you for being our God and our Savior. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey. Right. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good.